you to me. You issued the challenge, yeah, you threw it up. Step to the stage, too late, I blew it up. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Nat, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. I really am. I'm actually really, really excited to talk about this movie tonight. Dude, it's been a long time coming. This is our 11th movie, I think, that we've done this season? I have lost count. I think it's 11. I think Miami Blues was gold number 10, and now we're on to 11. We're into double digits, baby! (laughs) Yeah, uh... This week on Back to the Movies, a podcast where we go back to a certain year of cinema and discuss a lot of the movies that came out that year. We're going back to 1990 this year. We are discussing Reginald Hudlin's House Party. Neither of us had ever seen it before. We're Mm -mm. very excited to talk about it. We got a lot of cool history, a lot of cool takes on the movie. And we're just going to dive right in. Ben, what did you think of House Party? I, I think I loved it. Wow. It was an interesting experience because for the first 45 minutes, I kind of appreciated it at arm's length where I wasn't really like, it wasn't really resonating with me, but I was admiring it. Um, The movie starts with this incredible shot. I was, I was so blown away by just the opening shot alone. But then for a while I was just like, oh, these are fun, quirky characters. I like the style. I like the design, but the jokes aren't really making me laugh. And this probably isn't my version of this story. But then this movie becomes a testament to how it really only takes one great scene to make a movie great. (laughs) Which scene is that? The dance-off. The dance-off. Pretty much from the dance-off until Kid winds up in prison, I was all in on this movie. Wow, okay. And the dance-off itself was so, I was so unprepared and I found it so enrapturing that it really did take this movie from a movie that I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm glad we watch it to a movie that I think I genuinely love. Damn. Those those are some really kind words for House Party. I'm I'm not as hype on the movie as you are, I think. I wouldn't say I loved it, but I loved watching it. And I totally agree with you about that epiphany moment of the dance-off. I even wrote in my notes, like, dance-off is amazing. And you're totally right in that the movie just takes off after that and is super fun watch up until the jail. I, I kind of agree with you. I just, maybe I'm not as in love with the movie as you are, but mm-hmm. I, I'm really excited to talk about why it is that you love it so much. Yeah, me too. I mean, we should just jump right to the dance party. Yeah. Let's, let's, just, <laughs> let's just talk about the dance. No, 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 no. Wait, we got to do our due diligence first. We got to do our due diligence first. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got um, Reginald Hudlin and his brother, Warrington. They were sort of the creative minds behind this movie. Let's talk a little bit about their history and how this movie kind of came to be. I want to start making this like its own segment. It can be called Ben's Book Report Corner, where I <laughs> just read off Ben's the Wikipedia effects. We love Ben's Book Report. Look, I got embarrassed about it, like, episode four, and you know what? Now I'm leaning in. I love the Book Report. No, the this Book is Report the good is stuff. my bread and butter. This is great because you sound very authoritative, first and foremost, and <laughs> people are learning a lot of cool stuff about how these movies came to be. We're not just nerding out and being like, the lightsaber fight was really cool with Yoda. <laughs> no, we're going deep. We're getting intellectual. We're getting historical. You're getting the facts here at Back to the Movie. So Ben, hit me with the book report. So the Hudlin brothers, Reginald Hudlin, Warrington Hudlin, pair of filmmakers come out of East St. Louis, the Illinois side of St. Louis, which Reginald Hudlin described as the blackest city in America when he was growing up. They both aspired to be filmmakers and Reggie spent his whole teenage years just writing down all the things that he wanted to put in a movie. He goes to Harvard and as a senior thesis, he makes a 20 minute short called House Party, based off a hip-hop song that he'd been listening to. And he tries to pack in all those things from his childhood that he experienced. The short is successful enough that it sort of starts to circulate around. They do some networking. The movie winds up at New Line, and they love it. And they go to Hudland with the idea that they expand the short to a feature film. I can't imagine. How do you think that that short made its way around Hollywood. Was it just a VHS tape that the studio executives would pass to each other? Reginald said he had a friend who was like a a, a junior executive at New Line. 
Okay. Gave her the video and then so he just she, has this. She, she I'm just thinking on. physically, like it's not like the internet where you. Can oh yeah, just send oh the yeah, link. they were VHS tapes, absolutely. Here's my VHS, bro. Don't forget to rewind it. <laughs> okay, so so what happens next? Well, it's also worth talking a little bit about his older brother. Warrington goes to Yale, and when he graduates, he and one of his fellow graduates found the Black Filmmakers Foundation, which is a nonprofit that helps distribute independent black films in the 80s. They are one of the companies that help get Spike Lee's early movies out to the public. So they're both going to be filmmakers. They want to be filmmakers. And they team together. Clearly, I mean, education, Ivy League schools, you know, they don't count for everything. But these guys were smart. They were canny. And they positioned themselves really well in the industry at just the right time. Because the 80s is this huge boom for black cinema and independent black cinema. And they are right in the right place to capitalize on it. I thought there's a really telling quote uh, from Reggie where he said, at the time, there were a lot of explicitly political films being made, which is great. But I thought the best way to say something political is to do it in a way that doesn't feel like you're sending a message at all, which I also really think speaks to the commercial ambitions the two of them had. Mm. They definitely recognized that if you have something to say or you want to offer a new perspective, you better make it commercially viable. Yeah. And all this stuff we're talking about because House Party is this odd marriage of the teen sex comedy, which has been around for decades at this point, And they kind of has at like a nadir after all the John Hughes movies of the decade prior. They weren't setting out to break the mold, to tile an entirely new story. They made a movie that was from an established genre that relied on established tropes and the kinds of jokes and characters that audiences would have been familiar with, but everything is done with just a little bit of a twist. Yeah. A twist that's unique to their perspective and their upbringing. That was one of the coolest things about watching this movie is that you could see that they were bringing their upbringing to it. It was it was a unique voice, especially for a movie like this. And it also just kept things light and fun. It never became like an after-school special with any of the kind of political stuff that it's doing. That was one of the things I enjoyed most about the movie. So let's get into the plot. The movie begins with this kind of dreamy prologue, in a way. Would you call it a prologue? Uh, I guess it's, I mean, we're shown that it's a dream from our main character. Right. So it's, it's literally like, it's two shots, but it's made to look like one shot. I guess it's three because you get the roof going off too. You start on the street and you're looking at this house and this house is a glow with light. It looks like the house is possessed. It's like poltergeist or some shit. And the camera pushes into the house and in through the door into a world full of light and smoke. And then there are bodies of people just dancing in slow motion. And it's still all light and smoke and it's crazy. And then we cut to the roof and the roof is blown off the house. (laughs) And then Kid wakes up. It's quite a way to open the movie. I got to say, a lot of watching this movie, I was just like, man, coronavirus sucks. Like, I could <laughs> never go to this party ever again. God yeah, damn they it. were not practicing social distancing. No social distancing whatsoever. I loved this shot so much. You're talking about the sh- the, the two shots of the house going into the... Uh... Into the people dancing. People dancing. Which is meant to look like one shot, basically. It's sort of like a, a rope cut. Like from Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, where you sort of pan over a solid object for a minute so that you can switch reels and then right. you move over to the other thing. I didn't know what to expect when we sat down to watch this movie. I knew it was a comedy. I knew it was a pretty important cultural touchstone, but I had no familiarity with it. I'm not a big hip hop fan. I don't know who Kid and Play are. So <laughs> there wasn't like, I, I really didn't know where we where I was going to wind up on this film. And then it immediately starts with something that is so esoteric and stylish and immediately gripping. It looks like the opening shot of a horror film in no part of my mind. Did I think that was how this movie would begin? Yeah. And so almost immediately I was like really intrigued by the film. I was like, Oh Mm. man, the movie can't really sustain that for me for this, this first opening section. But I just, I got to call it out because it's one of the most incredible opening shots of movie I've ever seen. Well, and then we go into kid waking up and we could stay this movie is basically in like this weird crazy reality where everyone is the coolest style i've ever seen these are not like normal kids the kids got this insane haircut with a custom pajama cap 
that yeah, covers I love the pajama it's cap. It's like the highest fade cut in the history of fade cuts. And I think he was rocking that fade cut in real life. If you look at pictures of him from the era, that was his real hair. So maybe that was his actual his actual pajama top. The style of this movie is so cool. And like there's the guy with the coin hat who's mm-hmm. that's such a cool thing. And like I love that play just wears a suit to his party. There's there's great style that I wanted to call out. Yeah, absolutely. This and Miami Blues back to back, some great fashion movies. Oh yeah, totally. From two completely different ends of the spectrum. We're talking like Miami Vice all the way to like hip hop. It's it's an amazing time for style. So we kind of follow kid to school, right? There's like the breakfast scene. We kind of meet Pop. Yeah, he's got the whole thing. He's, he does some hairspray jokes and yeah. does the breakfast joke where even though Pop is asleep, he knows that he hasn't eaten his breakfast. So one of the things that this movie does that I think is really interesting is is the way it involves the Pop character. Because adults in teen movies are usually antagonists and parents are almost always absent. Like think about the parents in like Ferris Bueller. Right. But Pop and his relationship with Kid is like the emotional heart of this movie. Yeah. And it starts right in the very beginning when Kid takes off his shoes when he's asleep on the bed. Yeah, it's true. And I wanted to talk about, we're going to talk about all the actors in this movie, but since you mentioned Pop, I wanted to talk about the actor who played him, Robin Harris, who was a comedian slash actor. He's in Do the Right Thing a year earlier as Sweet Dick Willie, who has the amazing line where he tells Buggin' Out, he should sue the barber that, or boycott the barber that fucked up his head. Uh, and Robin <laughs> Harris is just the funniest guy. He had a very, very popular HBO comedy special right around the same time as this movie. He had a bit about Baby's Kids, which got turned into an animated movie a few years By later. Reggie Hudlin. Which Reggie Hudlin directed. And really tragically, Robin Harris passed away of a heart attack a week and a half after House Party came out. He was on the verge of a huge comedy career and probably would have been in tons more movies. Could have become a household name for all we know. But he died at the age of 36 after doing a sold out comedy show. So RIP Robin Harris, you're fucking funny. There's a lot of stories from the set where they talk about how everyone would crack up when he was on set, particularly later when he's at the um, at the party and he's insulting a bunch of the teens. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is improvised. And Reggie Helen would tell stories about how like he would have to tell everyone they were rolling, but not actually roll the camera because they didn't have enough film. And they, he knew everyone would laugh too much for oh the first God. few times. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's sad that he passed away. And they actually in the sequel, The House Party, they honor pop's character by actually writing him to be dead which i haven't seen that movie but i I thought that was kind of cool that they actually are like facing reality and not just saying like he's in cabo (laughs) he's working he works nights right exactly so let's also talk you mentioned a second ago that as a 30 year old millennial you and i both have no idea uh, who can play were or, or even are until watching this movie I think I'm a bigger hip hop fan than you are, but I still can play. I've got one of their songs in my iTunes collection. Basically, the story is Kid and Play were two guys from New York. Um, I think one was from Queens, one is from the Bronx, and they grew up together, went to high school at the same time, and they were in rival hip hop groups in their high schools. And they ultimately joined forces and in the mid-80s became Kid and Play. Their real names are Christopher Reed, Kid, and Christopher Martin, Play. Their first full-length album was Too Hype, which came out in 1988. And they just kind of from there blew up. Like, they became sort of a hip-hop duo that was well-known in the hip-hop community. And they originated this really big dance called the Kickstep, which they do in House Party. It's where the two guys are, like, kind of dancing together and touch feet, which I thought is an amazing dance. Their career height was definitely 1990. In 1990 alone, they had this movie come out, they had a number one rap song, and they had the crown jewel of success in 1990, their very own Saturday morning cartoon. This movie also spawns a Marvel <laughs> Comics line about Kid and oh Play 2. Like, they go. were everywhere. They were everywhere. And then the next year, they had another album come out, didn't do as well. 
And as we see with so many musical artists, you have your height, you have your pinnacle, and then it just kind of coasts downward and you never reach that momentum again. And so they are still in the history of hip hop. They are still alive and well. They still do shows together. Kid went on to act a bunch. Play went on to do other music stuff. He did some Christian hip hop stuff. And they're still out there. They're still kidding playing. But 1990 was their zenith. I have to say, I thought they were both pretty great in this movie. They are. They're really good actors. And I also really liked their relationship in this movie. Yeah, their energy together is like you can feel that there's a history there. Well, and the other thing that I really liked in this movie was it it wasn't just a vanity project for them. That was sort of what I was expecting, that this was going to be Kid and Play, the movie. Well, particularly since they're playing characters named after themselves. Yeah, it, but it never felt like that. It's really clear that this is Hudlin's thing, first and foremost. There's a little bit of history about who was going to star in this movie. What's the deal with that? When New Line agrees to finance the film, no longer an independent production, they say that, you know, if we're going to make this movie, we're going to need some big stars. And they're the ones that say we want to get a hip hop group in there. Their original pitch, though, is a pair of hip-hop stars who are hitting it big on television right at the same time. A little somebody named Will Smith and his friend DJ Jazzy Jeff. Damn, but they passed. Kid in this movie is not playing a Will Smith character, but can you imagine if that was Will Smith? I don't know. I mean, part of me could. The, the Will Smith of yesteryears, a different Will Smith from the Will Smith of 1997 or the Will Smith of 2005, like... This is the beginning of his career, so maybe he could have pulled it off. But maybe the movie would have been rated PG-13. This is a <laughs> R-rated movie. Yeah, yeah, it's very R. I will say, like, what you just said about it not being a vanity project is a fair point. Kid in particular is such a goofball in this movie. It's almost hard to imagine Will Smith playing someone that goofy, but maybe he and would have been the play part. Play is kind of an asshole in this movie, in my opinion. <laughs> to me, he was sort of the typical rich kid asshole who... Knows he's got money and he's just like showing off all the time. And he's kind of a jerk. He doesn't want kid to rap. Like he wants to be the center of attention. <laughs> I'm going to be the only one who raps at my party. Yeah. He kind of comes off as a bit of a tool, like a, a rich, arrogant tool. Um, so I really liked that despite kid being a goofball and despite play being a bit of a douchebag, they still manage to have like a good friendship that feels very real, but also feels like kind of a high school friendship. To me, they weren't best friends. They were just like good buddies, but right. it's not like super bad where they're totally tied to each other. It's more like, oh, here's this guy who's having a party and he's my buddy. And by the end of it, obviously there's some real friendship moments. But to me, a lot of high school is like, you're just trying to survive and you've got your allies and you've got your enemies. And this movie did such a good job of kind of showing that. Like, no one's doing anything for each other because out of, like, the goodness of their heart. They're doing everything for each other to get laid or to have a good party or to get drunk. Like, they're fucking asshole high school kids, and it's, it's great. I think competition is a key element of a true high school friendship. Yeah. Because there's so much that you are competing over, whether it's the attention of the person you're into or a position on a sports team or the title of the best rapper in the group, whatever, like high school is a time when everybody is, whether they acknowledge it or not competing with every one of their peers. Yeah. And so it's hard to have a friendship that isn't touched by that. And I think this movie is really true to that. Totally. No, it felt very authentic in a way that I haven't seen in a lot of teen movies before. So that was super cool. So moving on in the plot, we go to school. There's a lot of talk about this party that's going to happen. I think the biggest thing that happens here are the bullies yeah. who are played by another rap group called Full Force, those three guys. And that group has produced many other artists over the years. They've done stuff for like the Backstreet Boys, and they're just doing their best to be these ridiculous bullies at the high school. Very jacked I bullies. Didn't take adequate notes here, but I actually think it was a full force song that inspired the original short. Oh, cool. And their music is all over the soundtrack. Yeah, their music is playing during the famous dance scene. So these guys aren't just meathead bullies. These guys are legit musicians that are kind of they're kind of doing the um, Morris Day in the Time thing in Purple Rain. Did you ever see Purple Rain? I have not seen Purple Rain. Oh, so in Purple Rain, it's the exact same thing where the villain is basically just another musician 
playing himself and he's a total asshole, but he gets to play his music. So it's great. And he's, he's hilarious. Highly recommend performing another great music movie. So yeah, these guys are total jerks. Kid kind of fucks with them a little bit. I loved the jello hitting Reagan's portrait on the wall of the cafeteria. <laughs> thought that was amazing. And I also loved it when they got in trouble and the school administrator, this great punchline where she's like, "Will you? would you mind explaining to me why you called his mother a garden tool? I just thought that was so fucking funny. <laughs> and the, the movie's playing it light. It's playing with these cultural tropes, but it's just so good. And it's also saying fuck you to Reagan. So it's just an amazing group of jokes. Moving on, a lot happens while we get ready for the party. So much happens. There's Kid and Pop. Kid's right. trying to avoid his his pink slip coming in. There's so many good little gags about that. See, I think in this section of the movie, you can really feel that Reggie is a first-time filmmaker, that okay. Huglin is a first-time filmmaker, because this sequence where Kid... The concept of the sequence is really simple. Kid wants to go to the party, but he got in a fight at school. The school is going to notify his dad. If his dad finds out that he got in a fight, he will not be able to go to the party. Right. And we get all these uh, false alarms. Uh, the phone rings. Uh, there's mail, but dad's already got the mail. And it felt like it was written in such a way that there was a lot of meat there to really play with the sequence. But none of the beats really played out exactly the way they needed to to make me really feel both the comedy and the tension of the situation, particularly with the final reveal where the phone rings and there's a knock at the door at the same time. And then the dad answers the phone and kid goes to the door and then mail comes through and the dad just has him give him the mail. Like there just wasn't enough of a thing that kid could do to try and avoid the situation. It just felt like somebody who didn't have a, the firmest grasp on cinematic language trying to feel their way through how to make the sequence work and, and kind of landing a little short. This is what I mean about the first half of this movie, me sort of appreciating it at arm's length, where there's a lot of fun style, there's a few good gags. I really, I get what they're going for, but it's not landing 100%. Right. I mean, I, I agree. It got a little stale, especially because we've seen that situation play out so many times before somebody trying to hide something from someone else and this wasn't particularly inventive with any of well, it he's like not even really trying to hide it like he just doesn't have any agency in the scene he just sort of walks around waiting for his dad to find out <laughs> i will say this though that is very accurate to how it actually is when you're trying to hide something like that <laughs> like it's not always that you have a rube goldberg device set up in your room like ferris bueller like Kid in this situation is an actual teenager where the best job he can do is to just take the phone off the hook for 15 seconds. And his dad's immediately like, put the goddamn phone back on the hook. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying, where like cinematically, it's not the most interesting thing. Other things that are going on at this moment, Play and Bilal have to load up Play's piece of shit car with all the DJ equipment. Because this right. is an era where in order to have a good party, you couldn't just buy a speaker at Best Buy with an iPhone plugged into it. You had to actually have a freaking DJ be there to blow shit up. There's there's a whole conversation during the school sequence where Play convinces Bilal, played by Martin Lawrence, to DJ the party. Martin Lawrence doesn't want to do it because too much work, too much aggravation, not enough in return. But they convince him. They convince him, and it really pays off in this sequence, which I actually thought was pretty funny, where he goes to pick up Martin Lawrence, but he brought a chick with him, so there isn't enough room in the tiny little car. See, he's a douchebag. I'm telling you, he's, he's a douchebag. So it's kind of interesting. Martin Lawrence, this is pretty early on in his career. He's starting to do some comedy stuff, and he was in Do the Right Thing, although it's a pretty small role. He gets the role in this movie because Christopher Martin play is his cousin. Oh, there you he go. He gets him the role. That's yeah. cool. But he's only a couple years away from really hitting it big. Yeah, a couple years later, he blows up on his a TV show called Martin. And then he's in Bad Boys. I didn't think he was particularly great in this, especially considering he's kind of the third man, which traditionally is like the scene stealer a lot of the times. I'm thinking yeah. obviously about McLovin in Superbad. <laughs> but like the third man really gets the opportunity to be super weird and super crazy. And Martin Lawrence in this is kind of just exasperated the whole time. Like he doesn't get any standout moments really. I thought it was a very prototypical Martin Lawrence performance where he is both annoying, but still like, like slightly funny in his annoyance. 
Because he, like, spends the whole party being mad at the people who keep bumping his table. <laughs> and I, I mean, I thought that was kind of funny, but it also is like, dude, stop raining on the parade here. We're enjoying this party. Stop being such a dick. Dude, if they bump the table, then it fucks up the song. This is vinyl we're talking about. He can't uh, be bumping the table. I agreed with Chill when he said he was making it better for him. <laughs> I don't know. I think Martin Lawrence is way funnier and do the right thing. And obviously he became like a comedy legend, but in this, he was a random teenager. Though he is a key part of the denouement of the dance battle. And like, he keeps the energy going through the whole switch gag. It's true. He did save the party. So then there's finally the, the girls getting ready to Right. Party. We met them too during the, the day at the school. Sydney is one of them. I can't remember the name of the Shireen. other one. Shireen. Sydney and Shireen. So Sydney is played by Tisha Campbell, who also went on to star on Martin Lawrence's TV show, Martin. And she's just been on TV ever since here and there. And she puts in a great performance in this movie. She's really good. I really liked how much time the female characters got and just sort of all the characters, the bullies too. Like everyone gets a lot of time to do their own stuff in this movie. It felt very American graffiti to me in that respect where it's really an ensemble film. So kid and play are the main characters. A kid is the main character, but everybody else gets stuff to do. And the girls are no exception. We're going to talk about this at the end of the episode, but super bad is my teenage movie for better or for worse because that just came out when i was 16 years old and that sort of is like my generation's house party or my generation's american graffiti like that's the movie that came out at the time we were there sure. watching this thinking about something like super bad i think one of the coolest things in these teen movies is like the humanity that you get which you just don't get in super bad right super bad's way more just about the jokes and the gags tell me one thing about emma stone's character in super bad She's, she sort of just reacts to everything in a super cool way. She basically is just there as an object for Fogel and whoever to, to get with at the end. And this movie, House Party, is similar in that regard where the two leads want to get with these girls, but the movie does treat them with so much more humanity and right. observes them way more observes we see their them life in their home environments we we also learn what they want because it's not just one-sided they also want to get with kid and play right so i just want to have that conversation at some point about the humanity that you can get out of high school movies and movies in general and no. are we moving away from that a little bit i think at the end of the episode we should try and put this in the teen movie canon figure totally. out where it falls we, uh, will we can rank. talk a little bit more about it there Yeah, totally. So let's move on with the plot. The party begins. Kid has to get the hell out of his house because Pop found out about the fight and he's locking him up for the night. And Pop's going to watch Dolomite. There's a great Dolomite shout out. I think that this movie is paying a lot of homage to like the funk of the 70s. In a few scenes, we're going to see. There's like the George Clinton cameo. Yeah, we're going to see George Clinton. There's this there's this commercial for like a compilation CD that feels too specific to be random like i'm sure that that was an actual commercial that ran on tv all the time and yeah. was like a was was a, a a call out that audiences would have recognized even though for me it's just it, it's just a weirdly prevalent commercial well and it's also like the the generation of the parents in this movie are the 70s generation of of people so it's it's also playing around with like the generational aspects of the whole sure. thing yeah kid gets chased by the bullies and i wanted to talk about the police in this movie, the two <laughs> cops. All joking aside, we are not the best people to be talking about this movie. And there's some stuff in here that is sensitive, that is culturally specific. And if we say something stupid right now, if we say something that that anyone finds marginalizing or offensive, we apologize. We're not trying to do that. We're just trying to have a good time hanging out and watching a movie. And we hope you'll you'll give us the benefit of the doubt that we certainly don't mean to say anything that's going to rub anyone the wrong way. All right. With that said, the cops in this movie, they are actually kind of scary. I was freaked out by these cops. The movie doesn't play with the fact that these are dangerous police officers that kind of hate the black people in this in this neighborhood that they're policing. Sure. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, it's interesting. This movie comes a year after Do the Right Thing, which obviously has, you know, as a major climactic plot point, 
police brutality. And I absolutely agree that I think they're scary. We play this scene three times in the movie with three different people. Yeah. And the cops are first introduced right before the party when they, they see Kid on the street. They pull over Kid. He's walking to the party and they basically harass him. They, sh- they shine the flashlight on him and they're just giving him a ton of shit. And then, of course, they're like, oh, we're out of donuts because they're police. Mm-hmm. And they leave him to go on his way. Um, but yeah, then there's the scene with Pop, which is also really distressing. And then there's right. the scene with the bullies later on. Right. And they also arrest the bullies at one point. But they, they again, I'm going to do the parallel with Superbad. Remember the cops in Superbad? They were right. fun. They're they were like the coolest. Out. Yeah. yeah, they were the coolest guys ever. But in this movie, the police are scary fucking assholes. Yeah, they're 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 idiots, <laughs> but they're idiots with guns. Right, and they're idiots who are obviously prejudiced. Yeah, but I I just wanted to shout out that in this comedy movie, I was genuinely fearing for what was going to happen to the characters under the police, and I think that's powerful. I think that kind of harkens back to. Hudlin saying, I wanted to make a movie. What, what's the quote? He wanted to make a movie. He didn't want to make a movie that was overtly political. Right. He thought you could still get that stuff in there without seeming like you were sending a message. And I think that this whole section does that perfectly. Absolutely. I mean, like when you compare it to Do the Right Thing, where there it is a climactic plot point that leads to a riot in the neighborhood. Yeah. Here, it's just a fact of these people's lives. Right. That keeps happening and... Nobody makes a big deal out of it. Occasionally it's played funny and occasionally it's not. These are also people from all economic walks of life. I think that the movie does a really good job of establishing the different economic situations for the four main characters. Like we kind of see that Play has a lot of money. He's got a nice house. Though not as much as as Sydney. Not as much as Sydney, whose parents are at a gala. And Kid... It seems a little more middle class. He's got a single parent household and Mm -hmm. his dad's working a bunch, but he's still got lots of cool stuff. And then Shireen is living in the projects and it does a good job of showing the cops don't give a shit. They're harassing everybody. Right. And again, I think that one of the great strengths of this movie is its specificity that a lot of this, a lot of the detail stuff, a lot of the textual stuff is born out of the Hudlin's personal experiences growing up in East St. Louis and a lot of that really comes out in, in some of these details here. The conversation that Kid and Play have about the advantages of dating somebody who has a house versus somebody who lives in the projects is a really interesting scene talking about something that I never would have thought about. That you know clearly even the characters in the movie are sort of just coming to terms with. Um, but that also speak worlds to these characters' experiences and the different experiences that they have. Totally. So... Now the titular house party begins. And I have like seven things happening during the party. Kid wants to rap and he's he's got his rhymes that he barely held on to while dealing with the bullies. And he wants to get on stage, but Play wants to be the only rapper. Play is also dealing with all of the crap that comes with hosting a party and he's trying to get with girls. He's trying to make things happen. He's answering the door. He's dealing with people fucking up his dad's plates, all sorts of crazy shit is happening. Bilal is DJing and getting pissed at Chill, bumping the table. And Chill has a friend, Groove, who is getting drunk off of Old English. And very weird that teenagers are telling other teenagers not to drink so much. I was like, why aren't they all drinking, man? (laughs) I guess it's a school night. There's a lot of really great think pieces written about this movie. It's a big cultural touchstone. I think a lot of people have a lot of nostalgia for it. One of the common refrains that I read over and over again when I was reading about this movie was how important it was to people that this was a movie about black teenagers in which drugs and alcohol are not plot points. Ah, true. true. Other than this one guy, nobody drinks. He gets shit-faced, but that's it. And there's no mention of drugs. Yeah, okay. I, I understand that. Um, and it, and to my point, it's also a school night, so maybe right. they're not trying to get super fucked up. Maybe they're saving that for well, Friday. Well, and I mean, I don't know about your raging New York high school parties, <laughs> but like, we weren't going crazy at our Vermont high school parties. <laughs> well, and this movie kind of takes place in anywhere USA. Like, it, it's 
I think it's kind of striving. Yeah, it's shot in LA, but they're very like specifically tried to bring in visual elements that could be pretty much any major city in America. Yeah. So moving on, Pop is trying to track down Kid, and we have the great scene where he deals with the cops. And even though he's got 20 years on Kid, he's being treated exactly the same way. Then the bullies are also out roaming around, causing trouble, pissed off that Kid escaped their clutches. Can we give a shout out to the one bully who's got the most annoying voice <laughs> in the history of cinema? He's basically Meowth. He's from part of Pokemon. the group, right? Part yeah. of the, the hip hop group. And I, I, I really hope that he's just putting that voice on. Sorry. It just registered to me what you said. Yes, he is absolutely the Meowth of this group. Yeah, he's Meowth. Yeah, he's totally Meowth. Then John Witherspoon, the great John Witherspoon, is playing a completely unrelated to anything else in the movie neighbor who's just pissed off about the party. I don't think he ever actually interacts with anyone. Maybe he's the one that calls the cops. So that's his he reason. He did call the cops. That's his reason for being in the movie. Even though the cops do not bother breaking up the party, they just arrest the bullies. I don't think there's a single shot of John Witherspoon and any of the other characters together. He's got the great lines about public enema, and it's just so funny. Then, finally, there is sort of the... I think it's like just the midpoint of the movie. It's almost exactly at the middle of the movie. Yeah. The dance scene. We've been at the party for a long time. Kids been trying to get to know Shireen and Sydney. I mean, ultimately, sort of the, the dramatic tension of the movie is who's going to wind up with who. Right. And will pop catch kid? Like, those are like the two dramatic questions that linger over all this. But most of the stuff that happens is all just kind of like hangout stuff. There's not a lot of action. There's not a lot of plot it's just people hanging out at the party and a lot of detail stuff and a lot of world building that yeah. you just described and that really kind of changes here when we get this dance off because the dance off crystallizes the entire dynamic of the movie in this really incredible way and this is what i'm talking about with this sequence on the one hand this sequence is technically incredible because the performers are amazing this is a dance that can go head to toe with anything Fred Astaire ever did. Yeah. Kid and play, excellent dancers, and so are A.J. Johnson and uh, Tisha Campbell. They're, they're all really incredible performers individually and in their pairs and the four of them together. But this dance isn't just about how good they are at dancing. This is also like the climax of this important dramatic question of like the underlying sexual tension of these four characters right yeah the entire thing comes to a head right here in this glorious moment of cinema where the dance isn't just a dance it's also a story being told mm. and it's so not overt about any of that but it's just captivating how well executed it all is yeah it's beautiful all the background dancers there as well like it just really feels like a good time so much fun so much fun and we have this in the notes later but the this movie was like sold out across the nation, right? Like it was yeah, kind of like a, a party hit. going to see the movie, right? Yeah. I mean, it was kind of undershown and that, that helped it sell out. Okay. That's usually the dichotomy, but the movie was a huge hit. And like people would be like, you, you have a thing in the notes that's like people were in the aisles. Yeah, they'd sit in the aisles because there weren't enough seats in the theater. I'm sure that the screenings for this movie were amazing because it's it is it's like a hangout movie and it's a dance movie and it's just a party movie. The movie's called House Party. So right. Super fun. The dance also is the start of just an incredible 30-minute chunk of the film where everything, for me, starts just vibing. Mm. Because it's followed up with the rap battle, which is great. Yeah. Is this the first rap battle in a mainstream movie? I can't speak to it being the first ever, but in a mainstream movie, I, I'm pretty sure, yeah. I think that this was the touchstone rap battle up until 8 Mile came out. Sure. And it's great. There's some great rhymes and lines and this also the reason this rap battle works is because it speaks so specifically to kid and play's relationship in the movie they're rivals yeah they're rivals and they're specifically rivals for sydney and shireen so it's still continuing the story that the dance set up but all of this story is happening subtextually yeah so the winner of the rap battle really matters because they're kind of going to be the ones who have the initiative yeah in the romantic contest but then Maybe I missed something, but play lets Kid take them both home in the next few scenes. So 
I don't know he what gets plays. distracted by something. Yeah, he's. I think. Oh, he party. has to take. He has to take the drunk guy home. Oh right, he's got to take the drunk guy. That fucking drunk guy ruined everything for play. <laughs> so he's got to take the drunk guy home. That's right. That was that was pretty ridiculous when they left him in the frame of the door <laughs> and knock on it so that when he opens it, he just falls into the house. But again, like at this point, the jokes are starting to work for me too because yeah, when we get this wide shot of the house and just like a dude in between the screen door and the front door and the front door opens and he just belly flops into the house. It was hilarious. I'm so glad you mentioned that Hudlin just wrote down lots of things that had happened to him because that seems like the kind of thing that you'd be talking about for years after it happened. So then we get pop at the party, which I also thought was really funny. Kid has to take them home and pop shows up at the party while kid is upstairs. Yeah, He's starting to make some moves with Shireen and Sydney's pretty upset about that and pop shows up, but Sydney covers for him and we get this great scene where pop and the kids have like an insult off. He roasts them. It's so funny. It reminded me a little bit. It was a little bit more informal of the insult contest in the Sandlot. Oh yeah. Except it's an adult and a child doing it, which makes (laughs) it even funnier. Yeah. Pop is just like, what was his game plan? He was, I guess he was going to just humiliate kid at the party. I mean, we see later he has no qualms with physical discipline. So you think he was gonna kick? He was gonna kick his ass. Yeah, kick his ass at the party. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So, but he gets kind of defeated, and it's all because of Sydney. Uh, so she's she's covering for kids. She's she's doing the right thing. And all this stuff is still really good because we are establishing clearly that even the friendship between Shireen and Sydney, which has seemed maybe like the most solid friendship in the entire movie, we get that great scene of them. At Shireen's house. Where they're sipping Prepping on, for the party. They're, they're getting Kool-Aid served to them that they don't even end up drinking. <laughs> right. And he's pouring all the sugar in. But even they, you know, they're high schoolers. There's an element of competition. And when kid starts to favor one, the other gets jealous and upset. Yeah. But she's yeah. still a good person. She still covers for him. So we're learning a lot about these characters. Kid takes them both home. And even all this stuff is really working for me. I like the dynamics between all the characters. And I really like the way kid and Sydney's romance really blossoms in the scene to get all flowery with it. Yeah. Shireen kind of tells him he's got to wait. He tries to kiss her and she's like, no. And from there he's walking Sydney home and they kind of start hitting it off. But there is always this air of like, is he settling for Sydney? And this is all very authentic teenage stuff. He's, he is kind of settling for her. She's the second girl. She's the she's the alternate. And that's that's real. But what the movie also makes clear is that by taking the time to actually get to know Sydney a little bit better, he discovers that maybe the alternate was the better choice all along. True. And and it's not like, you know, Sydney is happy being second fiddle. Like all this stuff is done really well. All these characters feel really dimensional. Yeah. I really liked all of this stuff. Yeah. And then they end up in bed together. But they don't go through with it because they don't have any proper birth control. But then, of course, also her parents come home. So shit has hit the fan. And kids got to get out of there. There's physical comedy of him trying Put to go out the, the dog. window. There's he puts dog. the dog inside yeah. the barbecue. Which Animal really abuse. <laughs> Did they get the dog out or was it out there all night? So then we're sort of in this final act where play is dealing with all the things that you have to deal with when you have a house party, namely the toilet being ruined. I like that he had the foresight to like switch out the fine china with plastic he stuff. Puts, yeah, he puts plastic in the china thing. In the china cabinet. Another teenager move for sure. But the toilet is broken and he's really pissed about it and he's done. Yeah, yeah he's You're done right, He's just kind of like a spoiled guy who's just like, one thing went wrong and he's like, that's it, everybody get out. Yeah, he's a, brat. he's a spoiled brat. He wore a suit to the party. Are you yeah, kidding Yeah, but it's me? a pretty good looking suit. Oh, it's great, but... Every, like, I don't know. He's a total brat. And I just love that they were willing to do that for the character. So now there is a Kid chase. Runs him to the bullies again. He, he hides in a fridge, but the, the cops he show He gets up. chased. We get a cameo from the Hudlins who play the thieves. Yeah, that they was get funny. on the bus. They, they get on a bus. That was to be chased by a dog. That was not one of the better director cameos I've ever seen. <laughs> that was very like, hey, where are we going to be in this movie? <laughs> I know we'll play some thieves. Couldn't they just be in the party or something? I, that was yeah. insane. And then everyone gets arrested. Everyone gets the bullies get arrested and kid gets arrested. And now he's in central bookings. Let's talk about this section of the movie. 
I think you're you have some words on this. Well, I mean, it is kind of odd from just a structural standpoint because it's an entirely new obstacle to overcome that doesn't have anything to do with any of the characters or the dynamics that have previously been established. But yeah, more problematic is the homophobic nature of the scene and the rap that sort of climaxes it. It's really bad. It's really like 1990 bad. And Reginald Hedlund has said that he regrets this, that, that he thinks that this was a big mistake. Yeah. I guess it's mostly the placement of this scene, but would you call it the climax of the movie? I mean, it should be. It, I mean, it's like the final bit of the movie. It's the final sequence of the film is kid gets arrested and how are we going to get him out of prison? He's going to wrap his way out. Well, but he, and he doesn't even wrap his way out because it's really his friends who get his back and bail him out. It's not like he does a rap and he wins over all the prisoners. It's more like he raps for 35 seconds it and just that gives long him enough. just enough time to get out of the situation. And it's a bad rap. Like, I know that doesn't matter, but it's also not a particularly good or interesting set of rhymes. No. And part of me wonders if the threat was even supposed to be real because, like, they're in central bookings. Like, are these guys just fucking with him? Is the threat real? It's, I mean, none of it really matters anyway, but yeah. it just seems like such a weird way to end an otherwise pretty grounded movie, you know? I will say, though, that the sequence ends with kids' friends all coming together and pooling their money to get him out on bail. And he comes out of the holding cell and he walks down the hall and they're all on the bench and they're yawning and exhausted, but they all stand up when he's there. And it was just like, I had like a moment of, of frisson. To me, it was like the kids in the breakfast club all sitting on the top level of the mm. library. It was like an iconic shot. And it's so simple. It's four people standing up from a bench, but I really felt all of a sudden like a tremendous sense of, of nostalgia for being in high school, which was a time I was not a fan of. <laughs> can we can we get a definition on frisson, please? That was a very cool word you just used <laughs> that I want to make sure everyone I mean, knows. it's the uh, it's it's the thrill of emotion. It's the chill down the spine. It's the feeling of sudden and unexpected gravity. Very nice. I love that. So then there's a final scene. This movie does have some great relatable moments of being a kid where kid gets home. He's won the night. He got with the girl. He got out of jail. He is so slick. He thinks he's sneaking up the stairs and he's just going to tiptoe into bed. He's already in the doghouse. What does he expect from acting all slick? I guess he's just trying to avoid the ultimate rage of pop, but pop gets him dead to rights. And the movie ends with a pretty funny cut of kid whipping his neck towards the doorway being like, Oh fuck. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. And like, it's really fucked up. Cause obviously this is like domestic abuse, but <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't really fly anymore. Wouldn't really fly anymore, but it's just, it, it, it was very true to life where you think you've got it all figured out as a teenager and that you're going to totally dupe your parents. And it's like, no, nope, the end of the story is that I got my ass kicked and I got totally caught. And that's just the end of the movie. And I know there's sequels, but that's sort of where, where this story ends. There is one more little epilogue. Yeah. So we get after the, the, the cast role, we get a little like mid credit scene, Marvel style, where the roof that had blown off the house in the dream sequence at the beginning comes down and lands on the cops. It crushes them. FTP, man. FTP. Uh, that was one of the big, big themes of this movie. FTP. All right. Legacy. Sundance. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this. This is our first Sundance film. And Sundance oh, wow. is like a cultural force of the 90s that we should acknowledge. Yeah. The movie premieres at the Sundance Film Festival on January 6th. It's sort of an odd pick to be programmed at Sundance because it wasn't independently financed. And although there was, I found some conflicting information on this, I'm not sure whether or not it had a distribution deal prior to Sundance, but... It must have had something in the works with New Line because the movie gets released just um, two months later. Yeah. So, like, clearly there was already something set up. It won a bunch of awards at Sundance, right? Didn't yeah. Did it get, like, a cinematography award? It won the, the, the Filmmaking and Cinematography Awards, which are yeah. two big awards. The awards that, um, that Clerks won a couple years later. So oh, they are, cool. like, hallmarks of important films. Sundance... The whole, I think, Sundance era arguably starts in 1989. That's when Sex, Lies, and Videotape premieres at the festival and launches Soderbergh 
And the following years, you're going to get people like Quentin Tarantino and like El Mariachi is like 92. Sundance is starting to really come into its own at this era. And House Party is a big part of that because it's a big movie. It's it's probably one of the big hits at the festival of this year. And then it goes on to be a big hit theatrically, too, when it's released on March 9th. Mm. Yeah. So it's bringing some some credit to Sundance in a way. And bringing it to a mainstream audience as well. And this movie's sort of tenuous relationship with independent financing is kind of interesting. And independent cinema is a really important part of the legacy of 1990 and the 90s. But I don't think we're going to go too far into that because that's really getting into the weeds of like <laughs> movie financing, which I, I, I'm sure there's an audience for, but I don't think it's a very big one. <laughs> That'll be our second podcast. <laughs> uh, but let's talk. Let's talk release. March 9th. It came out March 9th, 1990. Budget of two and a half million dollars. Movie makes 4.6 opening weekend. So it doubles wow. its budget opening weekend. Huge. Impressive. Well, I guess Kid, it had the benefit of Kid and Play because they were a group that was popular at the time. And yeah, kids want to see a movie about yeah. kids. It's a good time and, to see a movie. And, you know, there's this really excellent uh, New York Times article talking about like the state of black cinema in 1990 that was published just five days before the movie premiered had extensive interviews with the the Hudlins along with other prominent black filmmakers at the time that the entire premise of the article was at this time, Hollywood's like black movies are in, they are commercially viable. We need to get black filmmakers. So they'll make us money with their black movies. And this is part of that trend. Mm. This movie comes out at the right time. The Hudlins are clever enough to position it in the right way. It goes on to make $26 million on a $2.5 million budget. That's huge. I mean, this is a big hit. That's a hit. It went on to spawn four sequels over the years. I think one came out the next year, and it's like a bona fide franchise house party. Yeah, I mean, we talked about there's there's the Saturday morning cartoon, there's the Marvel comics, like there's a whole bunch of stuff. There was an album that released in tandem with the movie. Yeah. Uh, you want to play the ranking game? Sure. Wow, this movie did well. So I'm gonna, but not like it wasn't like a right. Blockbuster. Didn't make didn't make a hundred million. I mean, and the thing about movie. Box office gross is like, particularly in 1990, it's not really the same as it is now where you could have these smaller films and the metrics for success were smaller. But if you had a movie today that made four times as much as this, it would be considered a failure, regardless of what its budget is pretty much. Right. All right. I'm going to put it in the the 60s, like 60, 64. This baby cracked top 50. Number Ooh, 45. 45. Nice. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Kid and Play and sort of their legacy because we're talking about the legacy of this movie. I think that part of the reason Kid and Play didn't stick around in like the broader cultural consciousness in a way that like Public Enemy did or even if you go a little bit later with other hip-hop artists like Tupac and Biggie is like the 90s hip-hop from the beginning of the decade was very different from the hip-hop at the end of the decade. You had a much more positive message, especially in Kid and Play's music. Like, there's just a atmosphere of fun. Sure. And lightness. It feels very innocent, in a way. I think that that sort of went out of style once gangster rap became a much bigger thing. And I think that that's sort of a big part of the reason that, like, this is sort of a forgotten act, especially for people that weren't around at the time. Because hip-hop became about drugs, guns, and partying. And I think Kid and Play was trying to do something a little more lighthearted. They just wanted the partying part. They just wanted to party. They don't even want to drink. They're just trying to dance and have a good time. The, the one song that I have in my iTunes is called Ain't Gonna Hurt Nobody. And the song is just like, ain't gonna hurt nobody with my dancing. And it's so different from <laughs> what you're used to with hip hop from that era. So I just wanted to kind of mention that to all the people that are wondering what the hell happened to Kid and Play. Let's talk about teen movies, specifically the one crazy teenage night. I know this movie. really fits into that specific subgenre. I put four other movies down. I put American Graffiti, Dazed and Confused, Superbad, and Booksmart, the sure. recent Olivia Wilde. Yeah, movie, yeah. I, which I never saw, um, but you did, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So where where do we? rank house party among these movies because we've been talking a lot about super bad's legacy mm -hmm. and how house party might be maybe not as funny as super bad but certainly a more human experience than i just super want to bad. point out that of of these other movies i mean i guess days and confused has like a slightly more rural setting as texas right yeah but like the other three are like 
affluent middle class white people. Yeah, I guess super bad. I, I always figure super bad is sort of they're like in a nameless suburb, just like roaming the town. Yeah. And there's cops patrol. It reminded me a lot of House Party, at least in terms mm-hmm. of the socioeconomics of the whole thing. I mean, thing. yeah, super bad does sort of feel like a weird sideways remake of House Party in a right? lot of ways. It has it a does. lot of the same plot elements just sort of remixed and And with no morals. It's just terrible. The the human beings in Superbad are terrible. They are sex-crazed maniacs who would kill and steal to have sex. Whereas in House Party, it's a little bit more nuanced, right? Mm-hmm. If we want to include everything... We could talk about like the Fellini movie, I Vitalini, that American Graffiti is based off of. Should uh, we throw that in the mix? I, I guess so. Sure. Yeah. Throw that in the mix. I mean, I, I think we're speaking from a very American point of view. So if you start messing around with Fellini, it's going to get <laughs> a little no. crazy. Look, I we can rank these ones. And there's other examples of this genre that. I we're probably I mean, we're forgetting at the moment, but there's there's another one that I grew up loving, but I didn't count it in here is Can't Hardly Wait, which is sort of the late '90s version sure. of this, and that's way more of a John Hughes ripoff. Mm-hmm. Um, does it doesn't really have as unique of a voice as these other movies? But I think that these five are a pretty strong indication of the last fifty years of one crazy teenage right. night movies. So yeah, what's your what's your what I was gonna say before I rank them is that this in my opinion, is maybe one of the best subgenres to just kind of keep getting remade. Because it will always be interesting to see how a different time and culture experiences this universal moment that everyone can relate to. Yeah, totally. So I I like all of these movies. Even... I was never a big fan of Superbad, and even that one is a movie like I casually enjoy just for like its expression of what it meant to be a teenager in the mid two thousands. Right. I'll say that I mean for me number one is American Graffiti. That movie is incredible. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. George Lucas was in so many ways undone by Star Wars, even though the original trilogy is an incredible testament to his creativity. He had other stories to tell. And was good at telling them, and American Graffiti is absolutely evidence of that. Totally. One of my all-time favorite films. Damn. All right. Uh, Days and Confused is three years after House Party. So. Right. And that's another big one. I mean, Richard Linklater uh, has a very particular style. I think I liked Everybody Wants Some a little bit more, which is kind of like his Days and Confused in college that he made mm. a few years back. Yeah. But it's certainly iconic and uh, has some really great performances. I think I'd put House Party and Days Confused kind of tied for second. Okay. And then I would put Superbad and Booksmart sort of tied for third. I wasn't, I'm not a huge fan of either of those movies. I, I, like I said, there's a lot of stuff that I sort of like just sort of seeing the alternate perspective, but they lack a sense of honesty. Exactly. You need that honesty. I think a great alternative and a, a great humanity-filled alternative to Superbad or Booksmart of this mo- more modern era would be Edge of Seventeen. Oh, I really like that movie. That's not a one-night movie, so it doesn't qualify in this very specific subgenre, but that is one of the better teen movies I've seen in the past 10 years. I think Superbad and Booksmart in particular are also trying to live in the sort of over-the-top grouse-out teen comedy, American Pie kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. And they're doing it in their own way with their own voices, which I, I respect. I just, I didn't find them particularly funny and I didn't find the characters as, again, as like true, as specific, as real and dimensional as in the other three films. Yeah. One more tangent I wanted to go off on was <laughs> have the, the, the way of life, the way of teenage life depicted in House Party, which is just the basic like, Hey, there's a party at this guy's house tonight. I heard it's going to be crazy. Let's go. And there's a DJ. Have have teenagers figured out new ways to have fun? That have we lost this way of life? Is it over? Can people in this era of social distancing, is it just like are are we ever going to have this youthful innocence again? Have you seen Euphoria? Euphoria is the most depressing shit I've ever seen. And that's the latest teen media that's out there. Now, you sound like you're about to lead into something about, like, the kids are still eating those Tide Pods. Listen, man, I just want everyone to have a good time. And I don't understand the world anymore. No, I just I thought it'd be fun to have a conversation about, like, has this way of life passed a little bit? Is there an innocence that we won't be able to replicate? 
but maybe we are not qualified to talk about Back it in my day, we used to play with a hoop and stick. Now they got all these video games. All right. They're all always right. on their iPhones. Listen, Ben, we're going to talk about 1990 now. <laughs> Let's talk about the most unique aspect of this movie, which is hip hop and, and how it how it defines 1990 in a way. Hip hop came to be in the 70s and early 80s. And I think that it was a known cultural force in 1990. And obviously Do the Right Thing was huge. Public Enemy was huge. Run DMC was huge. But as we get further and further into the 90s, hip hop is gonna become less of a niche and more of a very mainstream thing. That by the time 2000 rolls around, it is the dominant music genre. Yeah, it's the dominant music genre and still is to today. and I think that this movie has has a part to do with that. This is bringing hip hop to a wide audience. It's making stars out of two hip hop stars in a different context, and it's an era. It's a new era of music. Are we gonna watch a lot of other hip hop movies? I don't think so. I don't think we have any other. I mean, House Party was obviously the biggest one of the year. I don't yeah. think we have any. Maybe there's there might be hip hop tracks in the movies. But so then what is it then? I just want to push this a little bit broader so that we can apply it to our common threads that we are tracing through the films of 1990. Does hip hop represent something culturally or artistically that is happening in other films? Well, I think that a common thread that we've been talking about is sort of looking back and mm-hmm. a lot of hip hop is about sampling old music sure. and making something new out of something old. It's also the emergence of black voices yeah. on a bigger stage. So I think that in that regard, like it's very relevant to the time that we've been talking about and all the other movies that we've been talking about just because it's another cultural force that is becoming stronger in 1990. I really want to emphasize what you were just saying I've been thinking about one of our themes a lot, which is this idea that there is this strange dichotomy in a lot of the films where they are either really focused on looking back at the century prior or they're very forward looking. And some films are both. 1990 is is a decade before the new millennia. It's the end of a century. It feels like a momentous time in human history just because we look for patterns and we assign numbers and therefore it feels more important than it actually is. And I like what you're saying about hip hop, where it kind of does both those things at the same time. It is about looking to the past, but also looking to the future. It's about using the pieces that came before, but imagining a new form with it. And I think that is very much in that same realm of thematic meaning. I will say, I wonder, as we do other seasons of this show, if we will find that theme present in every year of cinema history. Could be. People are always looking back. People are always looking forward. Doesn't matter if it's 1990 or 1945. I don't know. We're we're just gonna have to find out. Season 12. <laughs> it's true. I mean, humanity is always looking back and it's always looking forward. But I do think that 1990 was a very specific moment in time. The 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 Berlin Wall came down. We've just right. ended the post-war period basically, and 9/11 is right around the corner. So it is really a central point in modern history a time when we are trying to redefine american identity under a new set of circumstances and it really is an interesting decade because it kind of exists in this liminal space between two much larger defining conflicts exactly um another thing that i wanted to mention is just the police angle of this movie i think that this is going to become a very big thing and already was a huge thing, but just the general attitude towards the police. NWA had come out with FTP, Fuck the Police, a, a year or two before this movie, and we've got Reagan getting smashed with Jello. There's there's an anti-authority streak that's really going to come to a head a few years later with like the Rodney King riots and right. the O.J. Simpson trial, and like this is going to be a huge theme going through the '90s and is still very relevant today. Now, have I mentioned that crime is a thing that comes up in a lot of these movies? (laughs) Oh, boy. But I actually think that what you're saying here is also interesting in that context, because it's sort of the reverse angle on it. We've been talking a lot about how there is this sense that 
crime is this existential threat to American society, that it is uh, nefarious and pervasive. And that was used as a justification for a lot of really destructive and harmful policies and practices that are represented in this movie with the prejudiced and racially motivated policing. Yeah. So this is like the other side of the coin. Totally. This is showing the consequences of perceiving the world in that way. And then we've we've kind of touched on it already, but just black independent film is going to be a bigger thing starting here and starting with, with Spike Lee. The next year, Boys in the Hood is going to come out and make mm. huge waves. Even later uh, this year, we're going to have To Sleep With Anger. Which was another Sundance hit, another black independent film, um, and another episode of this show to come. But To Sleep With Anger is like a an independent classic, but Boys in the Hood is going to come out next year, and John Singleton's going to get nominated for Best Director. Youngest the Best Director nominee ever still, right? I think so, yeah. Maybe uh, La La Land guy beat him at this point. I can't remember. I don't know. He was, he was like 24 when he made Boys in the Hood. He was really young, Singleton. Yeah. So, yeah, it's gonna that is going to blow up. Um, and house parties paving the way for, mm-hmm. for lots of voices. And it's not just black independent cinema. Like we already said, when we talked about Sundance, independent cinema as a counter voice to Hollywood cinema is a really important dialogue that's happening during this era. Totally. Telling different kinds of stories, telling them from different perspectives. And I mean, that's another thing we've talked about is, is, is old stories told from new perspectives. This absolutely fits that mold. Yep. So yeah, that's House Party. Really fun movie. Check it out. It's not available on any um, streaming services. I rented it. Yeah, um, I rented it once again from Fandango Now. Wow. That's Fandango my second now. Fandango Now rental, I have to say. I hope Hopefully the check is in the mail from them. <laughs> What's our next movie? Next week, we are doing something a little bit different. Oh, yeah, that's right. We are doing a three for one. A crime movie trilogy. Okay, there will be no discussion of crime at the end of the episode. (laughs) We are watching three prominent films about crime and criminals and cops and all kinds of stuff that all came out around the same time. We're going to do a little bit of reporting and comparing and contrasting. The three films are Q&A, State of Grace, and King of New York. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. I don't know how we're going to do this episode, but I'm super excited about it. Less Ben book report, more quick reviews. <laughs> and then after that, we're we're not. Oh, we, we have a lot of crime movies, actually. <laughs> I was going to be like, then after that, there's no more crime movies. But then Dick Tracy is like immediately after. Uh, it doesn't count. Hope you guys enjoyed House Party and watch all the three of those crime movies with the weekend that you got nothing else to do. You're in quarantine. And if it's after quarantine, you got nothing else to do. So go do it. Watch the movies. Listen to the podcast. This is Nat. Oh, wait, wait, wait. On YouTube, I've been watching old episodes of At the Movies with Siskel and Ebert. Oh, yeah. I love watching that show. They're so great together. But it got me thinking that we need like a better sign off. Oh, okay. So you ready for it? So you, so you say uh, whatever you're going to say, like, you know, this is Nat, and then I'm going to take us out. Okay, okay. So for Back to the Movies, this is Nat. And this is Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go Back to the Movies. Ooh, I like it. I'm keeping all this in, by the way. Yeah, we're keeping that in. We're keeping that in.